High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And today, we bring you yet another installment in our ongoing series about the lives of famous people during times of war or Star Wars. Allow us for a moment to briefly touch on an event that took place during Hollywood's second century. As you may or may not remember, way, way back in January 2014, Meryl Streep took the stage at the National Board of Review Awards Dinner, and as prelude to presenting an award to Saving Mr. Banks star Emma Thompson, Streep delivered a speech in which she accused Walt Disney depicted in Saving Mr. Banks by Tom Hanks as a kindly, if tenacious, patriarch, of having been in real life a quote-unquote gender bigot with some, quote, racist proclivities, which led him to form and support an, quote, 
anti-Semitic industry lobby. Streep went on to support the sexism portion of her argument by reading a letter sent to a female applicant to Disney's Animation Factory in 1938, which confirmed institutional sexism. Streep's comments, which were daring and certainly unexpected in the context of awards season, made international headlines. Without actually managing to really stir up controversy, the general consensus seemed to be, well... Duh. Meryl Streep seemed to just be saying out loud what everyone already thought they knew, that the creator of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, the pioneer of feature-length animated films, the architect of The Happiest Place on Earth, was actually a pretty sinister character, a power broker whose personal prejudices infected his incredibly popular, powerfully influential work. Even Abigail Disney, documentary filmmaker and granddaughter of Walt's brother and right-hand man Roy Disney, took to Facebook to agree with Streep. Of Walt Disney, Abigail Disney wrote, Anti-Semite? Check. Misogynist? Of course. Racist? Come on. At the same time, the Disney heir noted, quote, His work has made billions of people happy. There's no denying it. This brings us to a familiar debate, which comes up in discussions of all manner of artists and filmmakers, from Ezra Pound, who Streep also branded as an anti-Semite in her NBR speech, to Roman Polanski. How much should we take into account the distasteful or even despicable things that an artist does or thinks outside of their art when we're evaluating their art? This is never an easy question to answer, But in the case of Walt Disney, the debate is complicated by the fact that the same Walt Disney, who is popularly remembered as a bigot and anti-Semite, also essentially turned his studio over to the U.S. government during World War II for the production of training films and direct and indirect propaganda, including cartoons which made savage fun of Hitler and one feature film designed to influence military policy and bring a swifter end to the war. The same Walt Disney also banded together with a host of Hollywood conservatives to help convince Congress to investigate what they felt were subversive enemies hidden in plain sight within the film industry. Join us, won't you, as we attempt to reconcile the many Walt Disney's. The Disney studio and brand were built upon a truly remarkable contradiction. Walt Disney believed it was his mission to create a utopian movie factory to provide the masses pure escapist entertainment to give his audience the vicarious experience of having their dreams come true. At the same time, Disney was obsessed with realism. In the 1930s, Disney used the Silly Symphony cartoon shorts as laboratories in which his artists could learn to perfect realistic drawing and animation, which he planned to take to the next level in the first Technicolor animated feature. All of Hollywood mocked Disney's ambitions. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was dubbed Disney's Folly years before it premiered. Certainly you can understand why, to an outsider, it would look like Disney was caught in the weeds. 
Three years into production, Walt ran out of money and had to seek a loan. And then Snow White opened in December 1937 and became the top grossing film of the next year. Snow White was basically the Titanic of its day. A populist auteur's pricey, long gestating, extremely risky gamble involving state-of-the-art technology, which not only paid off, grossing $8 million in the depths of the Depression, but also forced the haters to eat crow, cementing Walt Disney's status as both an innovator and one of the most recognizable and beloved men in the nation. He and his work came to represent the best of what was essentially American during a period in which many Americans needed inspirational reminders. While riding this wave of popularity, the newly emboldened Walt Disney went all in. He spent $3 million carving his own studio out of an expanse of land in Burbank, 15 minutes over the hill from Hollywood. In a sense, the Disney studio lot was a prototype for Disneyland. It was a self-contained city with a network of streets, restaurants, gymnasiums, all the amenities one might need, designed so that animators would never have to leave. And then, Disney set to work using his creative capital to honor his original creation, casting Mickey Mouse in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, an animated short which would eventually serve as the centerpiece of Fantasia, a compilation of short, imaginative illustrations set to classical musical compositions, such as the story of evolution set to a drastically rearranged version of Igor Stravinsky's The Rites of Spring. Fantasia was Walt's personal passion project. His attempt to elevate the quote-unquote low art of cartoons to the level of high art. The two-plus-hour film initially did brisk business, to the point that Walt immediately started planning a sequel. But reviews branding Fantasia as pretentious may have hurt word of mouth, and Disney's insistence that the film only play in theaters outfitted with a proprietary, enormously expensive audio system called Fantasound hurt its possibilities for expansion. Eventually, RKO, which functioned as Disney's distributor at the time, insisted that Fantasia be pulled from theaters and cut. Almost a full hour of footage was hacked off without any input from Walt, who considered the whole thing to be a personal humiliation. In its day, Fantasia was perceived as a tribute not to the great composers, but to Disney's own hubris. It wasn't his only flop, but it may have been the one that hurt the most. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. 
With Fantasia a financial disappointment, as Pinocchio had also been a year earlier, the Disney company entered 1941 with $3 million in debt to the Bank of America. For the past few years, Walt had been borrowing from the bank with a promise to pay back his loans with the profits from the next film. But since Snow White, there really were no profits to pay back. So the bank insisted that Disney cut costs, and Walt's brother Roy instituted some major measures. Pretty much everyone who was not essential to the two features in development, Bambi and Dumbo, was fired, and those who stayed were forced to take a pay cut. Around this time, Disney's animators and artists had started organizing with the help of the Screen Cartoonists Guild. Walt made it known that he had no intention of negotiating with a union. Herbert Sorrell, the union rep, subsequently threatened that if Disney didn't recognize the guild, he'd personally turn the studio into a dust bowl. By February 1941, relations between management and the Disney Company employees had deteriorated so badly that Walt felt the need to try to make nice by addressing his employees. He admitted culpability for the company's dire financial straits, but said that there were only three ways to solve the problem immediately. Through drastic wage cuts, a production reduction which would delete jobs, or by selling the company. Disney said he didn't want to do any of those things, and so instead, he proposed making small cuts across the board. Walt's intention had been to rally the troops, but the troops actually thought that the speech was kind of pathetic, and it had the very much unintended consequence of recruiting more employees into the union. When Walt had started out, he had given animators a chance to do things that had never been done before and united them behind a utopian vision of the studio as an extended family. But the company was now at the point in its lifespan where there was a second generation of employees, younger people who had come to Disney after struggling through the Depression. This new generation was socially conscious, and they didn't see Walt as a benevolent dad. They saw a paternalistic hypocrite who was trying to squeeze more out of his employees for less in return. Walt and his brother and business partner, Roy, apparently in denial as to the role Walt's desire for artistic innovation and perfection played in the economic game of dominoes which led to their labor troubles, truly believed that their company had no real problems until, as Walt put it... The commie sons of bitches moved in. On May 29th, 1941, hundreds of disgruntled employees of the Walt Disney Company went on strike. The number of strikers varies depending on who's telling the story. The Disney version is that it was about 300, while the Guild claimed it was more like 700. As the strike dragged on, it was clear both sides would have to compromise, and a government mediator was brought in. Walt saw an opportunity to escape, and he took it. With war raging in Europe, it suddenly seemed urgent for North America to create alliances with South America. Famous American rich guy Nelson Rockefeller was appointed by President Roosevelt to serve as the coordinator of inter-American affairs. 
which basically meant he was in charge of putting into motion relationship-building exercises that would convince the people and governments of South America that the U.S., and not any of the nation-states of the Axis, had their best interests in mind. One of Rockefeller's first moves as coordinator was to invite Walt Disney to travel with a bunch of his artists to South America on a goodwill tour. Rockefeller would pay for the trip and also foot the bill for any films Disney produced inspired by the trip. And the hope was that Disney would find the trip incredibly inspirational. This was appealing to Walt not just for the free money, but also because it would allow him to at least temporarily wash his hands of the union situation. As Walt put it, I am not hot for this trip, but it gives me a chance to get away from this god-awful nightmare and to bring back some extra work into the plant. Throughout the South American junket, Disney was fawned over by locals. It was exhausting. By the third stop, Disney was, as he put it, goddamn tired of being dressed up like a gaucho and put on a horse. But it kept him away from the strike for a full 12 weeks. In all, the strike lasted for three and a half months, finally ending when the Washington-based Conciliation Service helped the studio restructure each department to create an even ratio of strikers to non-strikers, approving layoffs that maintained that ratio. At the beginning of the strike, the Walt Disney Studio had 1,200 employees. By the end of the strike, 694 were left. That was a lot of payroll relief. And yet, Walt and Roy Disney walked out of the affair feeling like they had been screwed by Washington, who they believed had been too conciliatory with the union. The strike put a permanent chink in Walt Disney's armor and a chip on his shoulder. He felt betrayed by his own employees, his own government representatives, and personally attacked by anti-business subversives. And in the years to come, he would seek his revenge. Even after the strike and ensuing layoffs, the Disney studio was desperately in debt to Bank of America. In October 1941, the bank declared that the studio could finish the films currently in production, being Dumbo, Bambi, and The Wind in the Willows, but otherwise insisted that Disney halt all feature film production until profits started coming in, allowing them to pay their debts off. The bank also insisted that the studio's power structure be reorganized so that a bank representative could be installed on the executive committee, and Walt Disney would essentially have his every move subject to bank approval. Another round of layoffs followed, again decimating the Disney workforce by about half. Things started to look up with the release of Dumbo in October 1941. Dumbo was a hit with audiences and critics. Critic Alexander Wolcott called it, quote, the highest achievement yet reached in the seven arts since the first white men landed on this continent. But this glowing praise didn't improve Walt's confidence or his mood. He perceived the elephant movie as a quickie, dashed off cheaply during the strike by non-striking animators, while Walt was largely away from the studio. If you had asked him months before, he wouldn't have wanted to take credit for Dumbo. And now that it was a hit, he couldn't. For Disney, as with everyone else, with Pearl Harbor, everything changed. On December 7th, just hours after the attack, 
Walt got a call informing him that troops were being installed on the Disney lots, from which they could keep an eye on the neighboring Lockheed plants. Disney was personally an isolationist. Let them fight their own wars, he said in the mid-1930s. Like many Americans, he felt the lesson of the First World War was that there was no upside in engaging in world wars. But in this war, Walt Disney saw an opportunity. More than a year and a half before Pearl Harbor, with the strike looming, Disney first offered his studio services to the military under the rationale that government contracts could help him keep the studio afloat. By the end of 1941, Disney's financial situation was more dire and the military was more motivated to make quick deals. The day after Pearl Harbor, Disney accepted a $90,000 contract to make 20 films for the Navy. $90,000 would be about $1.5 million in today's money, and it was barely enough to produce two typical Disney animated shorts. But even not-for-profit, break-even work would keep artists employed and keep the lights on during the bank's moratorium on new features. Disney accepted another lowball offer from the Treasury Department, sealing a deal which would force Disney's staff to complete a short on the wartime importance of taxes in just over a month for the bargain price of $80,000. With not a moment to spare, Disney brought cots into the animation studios so that his employees could work 18 hours a day and not have to go home. The New Spirit, as the short would be called, would feature a hapless Donald Duck who would go on to star in many of Disney's war-themed shorts. As in most of those shorts, here Donald is over-eager to take up arms against the enemy, but an authoritative voice booming out of a radio tells the duck that right now he needs to do his part in a more pedestrian way. You won't get a medal for doing it. Oh, that's all right. It may mean a sacrifice on your part. But it will be a vital help to your country in this hour of need. Shall I tell you what it is? Yes, Shall I? Your income tax. Income tax? Yes, your income tax. Income tax. It may not seem important to you, but it is important. What? Yes, and it's your privilege, not just your duty, but your privilege to help your government by paying your tax and paying it promptly. Oh, what's the big hurry? What's the big hurry? Your country is at war. Your country needs taxes for guns, taxes for ships, taxes for democracy, taxes to beat the Axis. Oh, boy, taxes to beat the Axis. That's the spirit. Yes, sir. Now, how about your income tax? Oh, boy. Get me out of here. Always the perfectionist, Walt was unhappy with the quality of the animation on the very rushed The New Spirit. But they got the film done on time, and the penny-pinching government officials who received it didn't seem to notice the qualitative difference. Unfortunately, the very existence of the film caused controversy within Congress, where $80,000 of taxpayer funds was deemed a ridiculous sum for a cartoon encouraging taxpayers to follow the law and pay their taxes. Republican congressman John Tabor made a name for himself by coining the rallying cry, billions for defense, but not one buck for Donald Duck. 
But Disney continued to get government contracts, many of them for training and educational films on subjects as diverse as aircraft identification and venereal disease. The studio also created map animations for Frank Capra's series of propaganda documentaries, Why We Fight, and illustrated posters and designed insignias for all branches of the military. Increasingly, bureaucrats and military personnel were flooding into the creative offices on the Disney lot, offering input on budgets, storyboards, and schedules that Walt didn't feel at liberty to disagree with or ignore. He needed the government contracts, so he was forced to cede his own creative control to a seemingly infinite supply of army brass who wanted to be treated like producers. Walt and Roy were constantly traveling to Washington to network and drum up more contracts, and there was so little work going on on the lot that was not war-related that the studio had essentially become a government facility. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At the beginning of the alliance between his studio and the military, Walt Disney had tried to draw a line between educational and training films and straight-out propaganda. He was dismayed by the limited creative potential in the former, but still found them preferable to the latter. He was trying to maintain a certain level of neutrality. Again, Walt had been scarred by World War I. Like many Americans, after that conflict had resolved, Walt felt like he had been conned by propaganda into supporting an ultimately pointless war. Eventually, a promise from Reader's Digest magazine to help fund a film based on one of their stories convinced Walt to go over to what he thought of as the dark side. Reader's Digest actually put money into several Disney propaganda films, including perhaps the most famous short produced in concert with the war effort, Der Führer's Face, in which Donald Duck dreams that he's become a Nazi automaton. He wakes up from this nightmare and begins to reflexively heil Hitler. And then he looks over and he sees his beloved miniature replica of the Statue of Liberty on his nightstand and gives it a big kiss. But the crown jewel of Walt Disney's war filmography, the only work in this category in which Disney himself was personally invested, was a feature called Victory Through Air Power. 
Walt was inspired by the theories of Alexander P. Dissaversky, a star World War I Russian aviator who had written a speculative bestseller advocating for the rapid development and use of super-long-range bombing planes. His thesis was that battleships and ground troops would soon be obsolete, because, as he wrote, "...only air power can carry an offensive war to the enemy, and only the offensive can win the war." Walt Disney was taken by Saversky almost to the point of obsession, and he was determined to make a film based on the Russians' theories. The Navy, who were afraid that Saversky was trying to put them out of business, strongly discouraged Walt from doing this. But he was determined. He knew that with long-range bomber planes not in production, only animation could demonstrate Saversky's theoretical plan to win the war— and he hoped that it could be a persuasive enough demonstration to convince Roosevelt and the Army Brass to put Saversky's suggested bombers into production. This was the kind of propaganda that Walt could really get behind. He really believed victory through air power could help shorten the war. To that end, Walt tried to rein in Saversky's futurism a bit. The fact was, the book Victory Through Air Power had based its proposals on a best-case scenario version of a technology that didn't exist yet. That was probably one of the attractions for Walt to begin with. But he was worried that if they didn't present the Saversky plan as plausibly workable in the very near future, then no one would take it seriously. At the same time, again, caught in a tug of war between realism and fantasy, Walt personally designed a climactic sequence of full-on dream metaphor, in which an American eagle would attack a Japanese octopus to the death. Victory through air power needed such spectacular imagery because it wasn't funded by the government. It had to at least earn back its cost, and in order to get into enough theaters in order to do that, it had to impress exhibitors as a work of entertainment at least as much as an act of education. Of course, Disney was hoping for more than a break-even. The whole point of making the film was to start a national conversation about war policy and to promote the development of tomorrow's weapons today. Victory Through Air Power was, in a sense, a precursor to Disneyland's Tomorrowland, in that it was Disney's attempt to prove that the future could happen as fast as we could dream it and commit to realizing it. In the end, the movie was seen by the right people, Roosevelt was urged to watch it by none other than Winston Churchill, but those people didn't commit to a change in war policy. And ultimately, victory through air power wasn't seen by enough people. The general public was indifferent to it, and the film lost as much as a half million dollars in its initial run, although eventually it more or less broke even. In the middle of all of this war-related production and financial desperation, a skeleton crew was working on finishing Bambi, one of Disney's last hopes for earning money to pay off his Bank of America debt. Bambi had been pushed back after a disastrous preview screening in December 1941, where teenagers in the audience made fun of the death of Bambi's mom. When the film was finally released in August 1942, critics savaged Bambi's grim depiction of mortality, and even its pictorial realism, for drifting too far away from the patented Disney fantasy. Manny Farber called the film entirely unpleasant. Instead of helping Disney out of their financial woes, Bambi put the studio another $200,000 in the hole. 
It was also another blow for Disney's championing of artistry over efficiency. The pace required by war work had forced the studio to throw out various checks and balances, and in just about every way, prize economy over aesthetic development or innovation. The failure of Bambi was a sign that even after the war ended, Disney wouldn't be able to justify a return to his preferred way of doing things. One bright spot, at least financially, were the films inspired by Disney's trip to South America, which were funded through the largesse of Nelson Rockefeller's government office and were thus a way of making commercial product that supported the interests of the Allies without violating the restrictions laid on the studio by Bank of America. In addition to a number of educational shorts produced specifically for South American audiences, Disney created two ostensibly commercial films under the Rockefeller deal. The first, Saludos Amigos, was a compilation of four shorts featuring Donald Duck, Goofy, and live-action footage shot by Walt himself. Saludos Amigos was savaged stateside. Critic James Agee wrote that it both depressed and embarrassed him. But it proved to be a cash cow in South America, and Rockefeller was so pleased by it that he urged Walt to make a sequel. That film was The Three Caballeros, a travelogue featuring Donald and two south-of-the-border friends, a Mexican cowboy rooster named Panchito, and a suave, cigar-chomping Brazilian parrot, Jose Carioca. It would be the first feature-length film combining animation with live action, and it would also represent a significant break away from the studied realism of Bambi. If Disney had dipped a toe into flamboyant, modernist proto-pop art with something like the Pink Elephant sequence in Dumbo, Three Caballeros extended those aesthetics into an entire feature. While it partially takes the form of an educational film, much of the design of Caballeros seems to anticipate the surrealist dream ballets of the MGM musicals of the next decade. Except that the dreams are mostly somewhat nightmarish. They're all about pioneers on quests that don't turn out the way the adventurers want them to, and or Donald Duck's frustrated desires. The film's theme is summed up in a narrator's line at the end of a beautifully drawn segment about a sun-loving penguin who sets sail on an ice floe for a tropical island, arriving safely after a narrow escape from his melting vessel, only to long for the ice-bound friends he left behind. He should be the happiest penguin in the world. Only sometimes he gets to thinking. <laughs> Never satisfied. Well, that's human nature for you, even if you're a penguin. You're absolutely right. Today, The Three Caballeros is a really interesting mess. But back in 1945, critics perceived the film as cruel, sour, and dark. Which it sort of is, and which accurately reflects where Walt Disney and his company were at after four years of struggling to stay afloat on a wave of patriotism. The former Merchant of Dreams now seemed to be cynically wondering if there was any such thing as fulfilled desire. Of course, eventually there would be a turnaround. In 1950, Cinderella became Disney's most successful film since Snow White. And soon after that, Disney started planning the biggest game changer, Disneyland. 
Throughout the war, Walt walked a fine line. He wasn't a war profiteer, because he wasn't making a profit, but there's no doubt that he wouldn't have turned over 90% of his studio's production to the government had he had any other viable choice for keeping his studio's doors open. And it seems like this experience of being denied his full capitalist liberties and his battle against the unions in particular solidified his conservative politics, turned him into an activist, and led Disney down a path which would arguably land him on the wrong side of history. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Before Disney's financial problems were even really apparent, while Fantasia was in production in 1938, Walt welcomed a special guest to his studio lot, Lenny Riefenstahl, the Nazi propaganda filmmaker responsible for Olympia and Triumph of the Will. Riefenstahl's visit occurred days after the Crystal Knocked, a series of coordinated attacks on Jews in Germany and Austria, which Riefenstahl told American reporters that Hitler had had nothing to do with. Disney gave Riefenstahl a personal three-hour tour of his facilities, and when she went home, she confirmed Disney's support, noting that it was, quote, "...gratifying to learn how thoroughly proper Americans distance themselves from the smear campaigns of the Jews." Disney's hospitality towards Riefenstahl was anomalous. Her visit to the studio came after the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League had placed an ad in Variety warning the company town that Riefenstahl was making the rounds and asking the powerful elite to do the right thing and shun her. By most reports, Walt was fairly apolitical in the 1930s. He was at the very least self-absorbed, to the point that during the Fantasia fallout, when asked how the war would affect his business, Walt snapped, What war? That said, it's hard to buy Disney's later claim that he was naive as to who Riefenstahl was. As Disney's biographer Neil Gabler has suggested, it's possible that Disney, quote, may not have known exactly what she represented. But this wouldn't be the last time that Disney, accidentally or on purpose, put himself in a position to be called an anti-Semite. The anti-Semitic industry lobby that Meryl Streep mentioned in her speech was the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, or the MPA. Founded in 1944, it was the brainchild of director Sam Wood and included as charter members notable Hollywood conservatives such as Barbara Stanwyck, Gary Cooper, Ginger Rogers, and John Ford. The goal of the organization was, as Sam Wood put it in an inaugural address, to ensure that, quote, 
The American motion picture is and will continue to be held by Americans for the American people in the interest of America and dedicated to the preservation and continuance of the American scene and the American way of life. In other words, they sought to protect the motion picture industry from the influence of un-Americans. Which could have been code word for a lot of things, but was definitely code word for communists. In fact, the MPA was widely perceived as not just anti-communist, but also anti-union, which Disney's participation suggests they definitely were, and also anti-Semitic. There's nothing blatantly anti-Semitic in the MPA's official published literature, which is not to say that their party line was in any way inclusive. They commissioned a pamphlet written by Ayn Rand called Screen Guide for Americans, which was really more of a guide for Hollywood filmmakers, containing a 13-point plan suggesting what to do and what not to do to avoid aiding the communist enemy. Remarkably, three separate points were don't smear wealth, don't smear the profit motive, and don't smear success. Other instructives included don't deify the common man and don't smear the independent man, which included this guide to independent thought. Remember that America is the country of the pioneer, the nonconformist, the inventor, the originator, the innovator. Remember that all the great thinkers, artists, scientists were single, individual, independent men who stood alone and discovered new directions of achievement alone. Don't let yourself be fooled when the Reds tell you that what they want to destroy are men like Hitler or Mussolini. What they want to destroy are men like Shakespeare, Chopin, or Edison. The Motion Picture Alliance was defined most clearly by a group that sprung up to oppose it, the Council of Hollywood Guilds and Unions. The council branded the MPA as a largely white, Protestant organization that was using communist as a code word for anyone different from them. Certainly, it didn't seem to be a coincidence that a lot of the supposed subversives to whom they were pointing fingers tended to be Jewish. Elmer Rice, a Jewish playwright whose Hollywood period included work on the screenplay of Holiday Inn, articulated the position of the council against the MPA in an editorial in the Saturday Review, accusing the conservative organization of witch-hunting in the name of, quote, anti-unionism and, off the record, of course, strong overtones of anti-Semitism and Jim Crowism. The MPA responded by having one of its five Jewish members, Maury Riskind, write a response. I would be a sucker to go around joining anti-Semitic organizations. As for the Goyim and the Alliance, they work with, dine with, drink with, golf with, bowl with, and play bridge with Jews. At least three of them have had the chutzpah to marry Jewish girls. In other words, some of their best friends were Jews, so... Screen Guide for Americans today seems to be kind of a pet bootleg for extreme right-wingers, but in the mid-40s, it perfectly encapsulated Walt Disney's personal philosophy, articulating and proposing solutions for dealing with the roadblocks that he felt were thrown in front of him by sinister subversives. 
His specific actions as vice president apparently went unrecorded, but we do know that the group met every month at the Hollywood American Legion Hall, where they hosted anti-communist guest speakers, and soon started lobbying the House Un-American Activities Committee to come to Hollywood and investigate the supposed communist infiltration of the movie industry. When the committee did turn its gaze on Hollywood, Disney testified as a friendly witness, complaining that Herbert Sorrell and the union had not only squeezed him dry, but also tarnished his reputation. For all of Disney's futurism, he apparently couldn't gain the perspective to see that with this testimony, he was doing a pretty good job of tarnishing his reputation himself. By calling on the federal government to investigate members of the film industry, Disney and his fellow MPA officials were essentially declaring war on their Hollywood colleagues. While waving the flag for quote-unquote the American way of life, the MPA were claiming that some Americans were more American than others and advocating that the members of the Hollywood community who were not American enough be sought out and ostracized. To the Hollywood liberals and Jews watching this happen, this didn't look too different from what had happened in Nazi Germany. It may or may not have been actually motivated by anti-Semitism, but it wasn't better than that. So, did Walt Disney devote himself and his business to aiding the Allied fight against fascism, and by extension, anti-Semitism, during World War II? Yes, he did. Did he also contribute to a climate of bigotry and division in the waning years of the war and into the blacklist period? Absolutely, yes, he did. Did he also have lots of Jewish friends and employees, and did he donate to numerous Jewish charities over the course of his lifetime? Definitely, he did. If the question is, which one was the real Disney? The answer is, well, all of them. But for all the multitudes and contradictions that he contained, the one absolute constant was Walt's deeply held belief that artistic expression and innovation should have a direct connection to unfettered wealth accumulation. The one thing we can say without qualm or qualifier is that Walt Disney was a capitalist. But, you know, duh. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. On today's episode, we had a special guest, Mark Olson, who played Walt Disney. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes by going to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell your friends any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. You can subscribe to the show and rate and review it on iTunes. We'll be back next week with our anniversary special in which I'll answer questions from you, the listeners. And then the week after that, we'll be back with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.